Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, Catechesis from the Cathedral. Join Father Adam Streitenberger on a tour of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. In this week's episode, Father Adam covers paragraphs 484 to 511 and 946 to 975, who are Mary and the Saints. Here's Father Streitenberger. Enjoy. That the Church, however, clasping sinners to her bosom, at once holy and always in need of purification, follows constantly the path of penance and renewal. All members of the Church, including her ministers, must acknowledge that they are sinners. So the holiness of the Church includes a a recognition, an honest recognition of our sinfulness, because this is the mission of the Church, really, you know, to, to proclaim forgiveness to sinners. The healthy do not need a doctor. Though the Church consists of sinners, as we're reminded in paragraph 827, 828 tells us the Church is also filled with saints. The act of canonizing some of the faithful which is the formal act of declaring someone a saint, helps us to recognize that there is already a realization of holiness in the Church. She has already reached that perfection whereby she exists without spot or wrinkle. So, just as we kind of pointed with the Church's unity, some sources for that unity... The same with holiness. So the holiness of the church ultimately comes because of her union with Christ, which would then include the fact that she is sanctified by the whole Trinity, most especially by the Holy Spirit, who continues his joint mission with Christ in his mission with the church. The church is holy because of the saints in the life of the church. She's holy, we might also say, in her aspiration and in her call, that she is called to greater holiness. And then finally, she is holy because of of Our Lady, because of the Blessed Virgin Mary's presence in the church. I think on a personal note, when we wonder at times, where is the holiness of the church? One, that's why we have canonized saints. But two, I think we always look to Our Lady. The church is Catholic. Now, this term is first defined for us in the catechism before it goes on any further. The word Catholic means universal in the sense of according to the totality or in keeping with the whole. So the word Catholic was first used, um, at least we have the first written source, are in the letters of St. Ignatius of Antioch, who lived in the 100s A.D. He begins, or at least it's, I mean, if he's writing it in letters, it must have already been the custom, customary 
to refer to the followers of Jesus Christ as Catholic. Why use this word Catholic, this, this word which I think we translate often as universal but is better translated the totality, the whole, probably because there were some followers of Jesus Christ who were not doing the whole. So they were picking and choosing the parts that they wanted to retain, which the apostles had handed on. So it is, of course, um, in our own age, this very common, it's becoming more and more common, um, almost universal. When you uh, talk to people about religion, you know, Catholics will say that they are Catholic. Um, But then when they refer to um, others who believe in Jesus Christ, they refer to them as Christians. Um, Of course, those we know that Catholics are Christians, um, the original Christians. But I do think probably it, that actually may be a good development. Um, you know, forever, and I was of the opinion that, well, you should refer to them as Protestants because that's, you know, they're in response to Catholicism. But to just use the base Christian um, as opposed to Catholics, means that they don't hold to the, the whole. There are things that they're not holding on to that have been handed on to. So whatever we want to use to refer to the others, um, the word Catholic means the totality. The Catechism tells us that we refer to it as total in two cents, or we use this word Catholic in two cents. First of all, the church is Catholic because Christ is present in her, in the sense that she has the whole package, the fullness, because she has Jesus Christ. She has the fullness of means of salvation, which he has willed. She has the correct and complete confession of faith, which has been handed on. She has the full sacramental life, which Christ has instituted. She has the ordained ministry and apostolic succession, which Christ established. So the church was, in this very fundamental sense, Catholic on the very day of Pentecost, and will always be so until the day of parousia. So even if the church, through persecution, was limited to some little colony or monastery in the desert of Nevada, it would still be Catholic and universal. Which is, um, of course, then leads us to the second sense that we use Um, for Catholic. And that is the church is Catholic because she has been sent out by Christ on a mission to the whole human race. To the whole human race. So the church is Catholic because of her mission. It's to every people, to in every age and in every time. To all the nations, the whole human race, the totality of the human race. 
And part of that mission, as we've seen, is to reunite all of humanity together in Christ. But notice, and this is the point usually when we think of Catholic, we think that it means that there are people from every nation that are, that's in the church, that the church represent, is represented in all of these different cultures and ethnic groups and nations. That is diversity, which, as the Catechism already told us, fits more under the mark of unity. The Church is Catholic because she has all of the means of salvation. She has it all. She hasn't cut any part out. And she's Catholic because of her mission is to the whole world. In the next couple paragraphs, 832 through 835, the Catechism helps us to understand, if you remember, the, the word church can be used in three ways, either one as what we might call the congregation, the people assembled for worship, two, the local or particular church, which we would use the word diocese for, and then third, which is capital C church, is the universal church. So in these sections, the um, Catechism reminds us that the Church of Christ is really present in all legitimately organized local groups of the faithful, which insofar as they are united to their pastors are also quite appropriately called churches in the New Testament. So if we're united to our local bishop, then we are legitimately a particular church. The phrase particular church, which is first of all the diocese or eparchy, refers to a community of the Christian faithful in communion of faith and sacraments with their bishop ordained in apostolic succession. So those are the marks of a particular church or a local church. So people who are um, in communion of faith and sacraments with their bishop, who's ordained in apostolic succession. Now these particular churches, these local churches, are fully Catholic through their communion with the church in Rome and the successor of St. Peter, the Pope. So in the New Testament, especially as we read the, New, the letters of Paul um, and in the book of Revelation, it talks about, you know, the church of Corinth or the church in Corinth or the church in Ephesus or the church in Smyrna or the church in um, Thalassia or wherever. The, um, these are particular churches, but there is still one church all of these particular churches, so the universal is present in these locations, the one universal church. But those particular churches share in the unity of the universal church in their union with Peter and his successors. So this is how we can use... Big C Church is the universal one, 
little c churches, usually plural, are the local ones. The little c churches share in the Catholicity of the church when they are united to the to the to the church, the particular church in Rome. Then the catechism goes through who belongs to the Catholic Church. And this I think is a an is always um, a very relevant paragraphs eight thirty seven and or eight thirty seven and eight thirty eight. So the church, the Catholic Church, fully incorporated into the society of the church are those who, possessing the Spirit of Christ, accept all the means of salvation given to the church together with her entire organization, and who by the bonds constituted by the profession of faith, the sacraments, ecclesiastical government, and communion are joined in the visible structure of the Church of Christ. So the one church is visible, and our membership, our communion with the one church is visible. It's visible in our profession of the faith, in our living of the sacraments, in our um, obedience to um, proper authority, the pastors of the church who are successors of the apostles, um, and of course most especially in our communion. And by that I think we could also point to um, the one Eucharist. However, even though membership in the church is something visible, that can be seen and determined by these outward signs, these visible signs, even though incorporated into the church, one who does not, however, persevere in charity is not saved. He remains indeed in the bosom of the church, but in body, not in heart. So there is this idea of being in the state of grace, which is quite often... Um, something in our Catholic lexicon, being in the state of grace. Um, The catechism kind of talks about this in the sense of communion, or if we want to use um, a fancier word, we'll just drop the I and call it communio. This, this idea of being in communion with Jesus Christ and with his one church. This is an important concept, not just for our own sake in our examination of our conscience and our living and everything like that, but to really help us to understand the church and how people um, might be united or connected to the church. So there is the visible outward member, you know, what we would say in in the appearance of membership or union with the church, that we've received the sacraments, that we profess the faith, that we're under a pastor um, and obedient to that pastor. But then this concept of communion or of being in a state of grace, which is this invisible union, but which can be seen 
visibly as well. So if someone rejects parts of the profession of the faith, rejects living the sacraments, or is unable to receive the sacraments, um, or rejects the, um, the authority, the legitimate authority which Christ has instituted in the church, then one can kind of see um, the absence of this. But of course, it's, it's, best not, um, it's best not to call that out, so, you know, to call that out. There's, it's someone else's job to do that. But there is this invisible, this communion, this state of grace. Um, so even if we are visibly in the church, receiving the sacraments, professing the faith under our pastors, we could still be out of a state of grace or communion. He who does not persevere in charity is not saved. So lest we think that it's just this outward sign of incorporation in the church. And this is important, and I actually, I think this is what the catechism is getting at, is that there are some Christians who, though may not be visibly united to the church that Jesus Christ has founded, nonetheless have some sort of union with that church because of various different things. And in the next couple paragraphs, we look at how this plays out. So in paragraph 838, the church knows that she is joined in many ways to the baptized who are honored by the name of Christian, but do not profess the Catholic, the whole faith, in its entirety or have not preserved unity or communion under the successor of Peter. So the church recognizes that we are joined in many ways. There is some form of union with those who have been baptized. Even if they are not visibly under Peter, it goes on especially to identify the Orthodox churches. So the Eastern Orthodox churches. Then the catechism begins to talk about the church and non-Christians. Um, before we go that way, though, if we, re- if we re- remember the unity section, the mark of unity, it also kind of helps us to understand then um, other Christians, not just the Orthodox who practically believe everything that we believe. There may be a few little theological idiosyncrasies, but they're really just idiosyncrasies. They're not at the content um, of, of what we actually believe. They're just different emphases. Um, but other Christians in general have some bonds of unity with us already by our baptism perhaps by some of the sacraments that they recognize. By some of the profession of the faith handed down from the apostles that they still retained. 
The Catechism then also points that even those who are not Christian have some sort of connections to the church. Because as we know, it is the church that all people will be gathered. All those who are saved at the return of Christ will be gathered in the church. And so, especially the Catechism points out to the Jewish people, who are already a response to God's revelation in the Old Testament. That there is a strong connection between the Jewish people and the church. Not as close as our brothers and sisters who are baptized that aren't visibly in, but nonetheless, they're connected. Um, You know, the church has come forth from Israel. The church's bond with non-Christian religions is in the first place the common origin and the end of the human race. So even those who don't necessarily believe in the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, nonetheless, there is a certain unity that we have with them by sharing in the same human race and our common origins. The Catholic Church recognizes also in other religions the search among shadows and images for God. And as almost a summary of those very first paragraphs, if you remember in Man's Search for God at the very beginning of this semester and of this, um, of this um, catechism, that there is this built into every human being, this desire, this search for God. But that there are limits to that, that we fall into errors, that we can have a disfigured image of who God is. But the Catechism makes clear that um, this Catholicity entails that part of the Church's mission is to reunite all of humanity together. In paragraphs 846 and 847, something, and 848, something which we touched about is this question touched about in, in our discussion about out, um, unity is outside of the church there is no salvation. The catechism wants to reformulate this and does it reformulates it in a positive sense. It means that all salvation comes from Christ the head through the church, which is the body. And so to the degree that we are united to Christ the head and to his body, the church, the one church which subsists in the Catholic Church. Of course, the affirmation that Jesus Christ, the gift of baptism, and his Catholic Church are necessary for salvation, this affirmation is not aimed at those who, through no fault of their own, do not know Christ and his Church. So we talked about this sort of um, lack of responsibility for one's ignorance, um, non-culpable ignorance. So if one does not 
know about who Jesus Christ or his church is. That's one thing. Um, But then it goes on, the catechism goes on, because I think sometimes we can say, well, they just because they don't believe or they aren't members of the church, therefore they have this, um, this, this lack of responsibility for not knowing Christ and his church. The catechism makes it clear because we can use that as an excuse for stop proclaiming the truth and just say, well, you know, those people on the, there's no need for me to go on a canoe down some tributary of the Amazon River where there's going to be big snakes and mosquitoes. No, like, we'll just leave them in their ignorance and then Jesus will sort it out. Well, the the catechism tells us, although in ways known to himself, God can lead those who, through no fault of their own, are ignorant of the gospel to the faith without which it is impossible to please him, the church. The church still has the obligation and also the sacred right to evangelize all men. So even though the Lord can work out messes, it doesn't mean we leave messes for him to work out. You know, maybe um, I, I'm struck, you know, by if, you know, you're a little kid and you're trying to tie your shoes and you get them all knotted up, well, maybe you should first try to unknot it before you just ask your parents to do it, you know. We have, we have received this, and that leads us really into the, the catechism's second emphasis, which I'm not going to go on too much, But that is, part of being Catholic is this missionary mandate. That Jesus Christ has given us this mandate of the church to go to all nations, to evangelize all men, to not leave them in their ignorance of who Jesus Christ and the church is. That we have this motivation to do it. It is from God's love for all men that the church in every age receives both the obligation and the vigor of her missionary dynamism. For the love of Christ urges us on. The reason why we don't want to leave those people off of that Amazonian tributary in ignorance is because Jesus loves them and he loves us and we want them to know what that love is all about. And so we get in our canoe and we go there even though the crocodile might eat me and the mosquito will bite me because the love of Christ compels us to do that. In 852, the Holy Spirit is the protagonist, the principal agent of the whole of the church's mission. It is he who leads the church on her missionary paths. The missionary task implies a respectful dialogue with those who do not yet accept the gospel. Gospel. Believers can profit from this dialogue by learning to appreciate better those elements of the truth and grace which are found among peoples. So evangelization entails a respectfulness. Um, and this dia- this sense of dialogue. Really, 
motivated by love, we want to know who these people are too. We don't want to just sell them Jesus Christ because he's a wonderful product. We also want to get to know them because the more that we know them, um, the more that we love them, the more that we ourselves are strengthened in Christ. So the, the church is Catholic in the totality of all that she has, ultimately Jesus Christ, and she's Catholic in her mission to bring Jesus Christ to every nation. And in that sense, a point which I emphasize again and again in my, my work is that the Catholic Church is Catholic because her mission is universal, and that mission is universal in the sense that every Catholic has received that mission, that call. It's not just some religious job to get in that canoe and go up the tributary of the Amazon. Or for that matter, it's not some religious job to go and talk to your coworker or your neighbor. It's your job. It's every, it's every Catholic has this missionary mandate. The church is apostolic. 857, she's apostolic really in three ways. One, the church was and remains built on the foundation of the apostles. The witnesses chosen and sent on mission by Christ Jesus. And the Catechism will take a few paragraphs to look at what this means, but there's a specific office of apostle which Jesus Christ established. The twelve. They're unique. When we read the Gospels, and we hear about the twelve, or in John's Gospel he refers to the twelve usually as the disciples, we have to think of them not merely as an archetype for all of the baptized, but it's a special office. Those 12, the apostles, are a special office. So we have to be careful to note what Jesus says to the apostles versus disciples in general versus the crowd. One of the things unique about the apostles is that they were special witnesses of the resurrection. Not just that they saw the risen Christ and encountered the risen Christ, but that they brought the news of the risen Christ to the world. Second, the church is apostolic because with the help of the Spirit dwelling in her, the church keeps and hands on the teaching, the good deposit that she has heard from the apostles. The church is apostolic because she has received these things from the apostles and hands them on. The church is also apostolic in that she continues to be taught and sanctified and guided by the apostles until Christ's return. Through their successors in the pastoral office, the College of Bishops, assisted by priests in union with the successor of Peter, the church's supreme pastor. So the church is apostolic, thirdly, because, and still apostolic, because the apostles are still at work in the church, 
through their successors, the bishops. The catechism in this section also talks about the apostolate, which is really a reminder that all members of the church share in the mission, though in various ways. The Christian vocation is of its nature a vocation to the apostolate as well. So the apostolate is the common work, the mission of the church, and each of us are to share in the apostolate. We lose, we've lost sight of the importance of that word apostolate by emphasizing ministry, that everyone has a certain ministry. That ministry can almost become overly personalized, both in the sense that, you know, this is my call, and also as something in which I kind of work on my own for this. Apostolate, when we use that word apostolate, it, mean, it reminds us that by our very membership in the church, we have a role in the mission of the church. And because the church is one, our mission is one. Okay, then the catechism, and um, I'm going to try to whiz through this somewhat quickly, um, tackles um, the hierarchical nature of the church. She first goes through the sacraments, the, 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 what we would call the, um, the, the ordained, um, the ordained those who um, have received the sacrament of holy order. A couple points that the catechism makes is that, um, one, no one can give himself the mandate and the mission to proclaim the gospel. The one sent by the Lord does not speak and act on his own authority, but by the virtue of Christ's authority, not as a member of the community, but speaking to it in the name of Christ. No one can bestow grace on himself. It must be given and offered. The fact presupposes ministers of grace, authorized and empowered by Christ. So on the one hand, um, the catechism is making it clear that it's not the church, the congregation, that deputizes the ordained ministers. And then second, it's not the ordained ministers who choose themselves, but it is Christ through the um, successors of the apostles that that these men are called forth to serve. This ecclesial ministry, the catechism uses the word ministry, ecclesial ministry, to refer to the hierarchy, to priests, bishops, and deacons. This particular ecclesial, the ecclesial ministry of the ordained, um, first of all, its character is that of service. Second, it has a collegial character. So that means that if you're a bishop, you're not just some rogue cowboy, you know, off on your own but that you work with the other bishops, this college 
of bishops, which we call the episcopacy. Or the same with priests. They're not just these sort of rogue cowboys, but that they actually are members of a presbyterate. The head of the presbyterate is the bishop. Just as the head of the episcopacy is the successor of Peter, the pope. The Episcopal College. They have a particular role of sanctifying, governing, and teaching. So it matches these three, the priestly, the prophetic, and the kingly. The one that I think is um, most appropriate is the idea of the teaching office for the um, ecclesial ministries, the ordained ministries. Um, And the catechism in paragraphs 88 through um, 892 talks about infallibility. So this gift of the Holy Spirit, this charism of infallibility, which is exercised in three ways. Infallibility is exercised in three ways. So infallibility of teaching, um, let us... um, It is the magisterium's task to preserve God's people from deviations and defections and to guarantee them the objective possibility of professing the true faith without error. To fulfill this service, Christ endowed the church's shepherds with the charism of infallibility in matters of faith and morals. So it is teaching on issues of faith and morals in order to preserve the church from error and so that we might know what to profess. Infallibility is exercised in three ways. First of all, in when the Episcopal College acts together in an ecumenical council. Of course, that Episcopal College is legitimate only in their union with the Bishop of Rome, with the successor of Peter. So we call those ecumenical councils. The second is at times when the successor of Peter speaks on his own in virtue of his, I should say, in virtue of his office as supreme pastor and teacher of all the faithful. And then the third is what is called the ordinary magisterium or ordinary infallibility in paragraph 892. Divine assistance is also given to the successors of the apostles, teaching in communion with the successor of Peter, and in a particular way to the bishop of Rome, pastor of the whole church, when without arriving at an infallible definition and without pronouncing in a definitive manner, they propose in the exercise of the ordinary magisterium a teaching that leads to better understanding of revelation in matters of faith and morals." So it's when the bishops, in union with the Pope, have consistently taught the same thing on this topic in definitive manners throughout history. We call this the ordinary magisterium. The catechism then talks about the lay faithful. They, too, have a priestly, prophetic, and kingly role in the work of the church, those are some what we might call internal and external. 
So, for instance, in the priestly or sanctifying role, part of that is the sanctification of, of the world by their presence in the world, especially in the family. But then also in the life of the church, they may take on certain functions or roles in the sacred liturgy. But the emphasis of the catechism is on doing the outside of the church stuff, not the inside of the church stuff, sanctifying the world outside. There's enough holy water and holiness in the church building. We have to get it out, you know, somehow. Or in the prophetic sense, teaching and explaining the faith, especially in politics in education and culture and in science outside, but also at times they might take on roles as catechists or teachers of theology in the life of the church. Or in the kingly role, being engaged in business and in temporal affairs, in service to our fellow human beings, especially in charity. That's the outside the church doors work. Inside the church doors work is that the laity have an important role in helping and assisting pastors in the governance of the church. And then the catechism goes through um, the consecrated life. The consecrated life might be defined as the state of life which is constituted by the profession of the evangelical councils, poverty, chastity, and obedience, while not entering into the hierarchical structure of the church. Consecrated life is the better term. It's the broader term. And the catechism teaches us that there are many different ways to live this consecrated life. You could do it in the eremitical life, which is as a hermit, You could live it as a consecrated virgin or a consecrated widow, either through a public, formal consecration with the bishop or in living a life, you know, um, on your own, you know, but definitely consecrated to the Lord. Or in religious life, where you take formally the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, or through secular institutes, which would be lay people dedicating themselves to the Lord, even married lay people dedicating themselves to the Lord, and then societies of apostolic life. So people um, would live a common life for a common work, sometimes ordained, sometimes not. Now, that leads us into um, the communion of the saints. The communion of the saints. Um, We are reminded, of course, that um, the church is, as I've already talked about, in this communion, this invisible union. Um, So we first want to talk about the communion in holy things, and then also a communion among holy persons. So we are united because of holy things, because most especially of the Eucharist, but also we are united with the holy persons, with those who are in heaven.
So how are we united in holy things, the Catechism says? First of all, we are united in our faith. Second, we are united in the sacraments, most especially the Eucharist, but baptism um, as the source of that union. Three, there is a communion of charisms. Though we have different gifts, special graces even, for every part of the church, they are united and work together for the building up of the church. Fourth, as we hear in the Acts of the Apostles, they hold everything in common. Everything the true Christian has is to be regarded as a good possessed in common with everyone else. All Christians should be ready and eager to come to the help of the needy. Fifth, there's a community of charity. Sanctorum communio. This means that all of us, and I think this is the most beautiful, maybe, of all these points, is um, that there's a solidarity that we all have in the church that we share in the holiness together. So that when someone grows in holiness, grows in charity, when there's some sort of act of holiness done in the church, it, build, it, it affects the whole church positively. But when we sin, it hurts the whole church. It negatively affects the whole church. Even the most private sin of someone I would never know in my earthly life somehow impacts me, hurts me. And then the catechism reminds us that the church on, in heaven, on earth, and in purgatory are united. And this is the very famous, of course, the church triumphant, the saints, the church in purgation, the church in purgatory, the the deceased who are being purified of their sins in preparation to enter into the fullness of heaven, and then us here on earth, the church militant, sometimes called. We are united. There's a union with us. This is most especially seen at the Holy Mass. And then to Our Lady, we're going to do this. You didn't think I would, but... Um, now, what I had done earlier, and I think this is fitting because today is December the 8th, um, although um, we celebrate the Immaculate Conception tomorrow, I was trying to the best of my ability with all of my strength to get us to Our Lady today um, so that we might reflect just a little bit upon her on, um, on this and for tomorrow, for our actual celebration of the Immaculate Conception. So I skipped paragraphs 484 through 511, which all deal with Our Lady. Um, I skipped that so that we might, um, we might cover Mary altogether. So the Catechism divides Mary, first, Mother of Christ which is the 484 to 511 section. 
and then Mother of the Church, the 946 to 975 section. She is both, and this is, I think, crucial. She is Mother of Christ and Mother of the Church. The mission of the Holy Spirit, we hear in 485, is always conjoined and ordered to that of the Son. The Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, is sent to sanctify the womb of the Virgin Mary. Mary was predestined. She was prepared to cooperate. In fact, the Lord's plan, the Catechism tells us, God sent forth his Son. But to prepare a body for him, he wanted the free cooperation of a creature. For this, from all eternity, God chose for the mother of his Son, a daughter of Israel. And Mary is prepared for this, not just by her immaculate conception, which the Catechism talks about in 490, through 493, but um, she's prepared by all of the figures of the Old Testament. In In regards to the Immaculate Conception, in fact, in order for Mary to be able to give the free assent of her faith to the announcement of her vocation, it was necessary that she be wholly born by God's grace. For us to really say yes, to really make the choices that we need to make, ought to make, for us to really be free, we really need God's grace. We know that Mary must have been redeemed from the moment of her conception because of the greeting which Gabriel gives to her, that Hail Mary, full of grace. In order for one to be full of grace, they must be free from sin. Mary's obedience, let it be done unto me according to your word. Thus, giving her consent to God's word, Mary becomes the mother of Jesus espousing the divine will for salvation wholeheartedly without a single sin to restrain her. She gave herself entirely to the person and to the work of her son. She did so in order to serve the mystery of redemption with him and dependent on him by God's grace. We rightly call Mary the Theotokos, the mother of God, because The one, her son, according to the flesh, um, was conceived in her womb by the Holy Spirit. And he is the Father's eternal son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Um, Mary's virginity, the catechism reminds us that of the importance of the virginal conception. Um, In fact, it's going to end this section noting why it was appropriate that um, Jesus took on human nature through the virginal conception. But one of the points that the Catechism makes clear in 499 through 501 
is that Mary is ever virgin. Mary's real and perpetual virginity, even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. In fact, Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's virginal integrity. In other parts, the Catechism will say um, that this is a, a physical, affirming, the, in paragraph 496, affirming also the corporeal aspect of the event that she was conceived. This is not a spiritual. She's a perpetual virgin, not just spiritually, but physically. The Catechism in 500 addresses the concern about the other children, that they were um, perhaps children of Joseph um, from a previous marriage. Let's read that paragraph 500. The Church has always understood these passages not as not referring to other children of the Virgin Mary. So the Catechism actually doesn't even mention that they might be um, children of Joseph from another marriage. In fact, two of the people who are referenced, James and Joseph, as brothers of Jesus, are the sons of another Mary, a disciple of Christ, whom St. Matthew significantly calls the other Mary, um, Matthew 13, 55, 28, 1, and Matthew 27, 56, for those that might be interested in those references. So the um, five reasons why Mary's virginal motherhood is part of God's plan. First of all, Mary's virginity manifests God's absolute initiative in the incarnation. By Mary being a virgin, it makes absolutely clear that Jesus' Father is God the Father. He only has God as his Father. Number two, it drives home the fact that Jesus Christ is the new Adam who inaugurates a new creation. Just as Adam came up from the dirt without a mother, so Je- or without, you know, I should say, without um, a normal conception, at least in the story of Genesis, Christ then uh, models the same, this sort of new creation. Number three, by his virginal conception, Jesus, the new Adam, ushers in the new birth of children adopted in the Holy Spirit through faith. So that we be reminded that participation in divine life doesn't happen by generation, but by the Spirit through faith, through the gift of baptism. Number four, Mary is a virgin because her virginity is a sign of her faith, unadulterated by any doubt, undivided and inseparable from God's will. And then finally, at at least on this question, at once virgin and mother, Mary is also the symbol and the most perfect realization of the church. The Catechism continues to remind us that throughout 
Um, and this is paragraphs 946 through 975, that she was Mary is the chief co-worker or cooperator with Christ in his work, that she prays for the church in her assumption in paragraph 966, she has taken up body and soul into the glory of heaven so that she might continue to be our mother in the order of grace. Thus, she is a preeminent and wholly unique member of the church. Indeed, she is the exemplary realization of the church. In a wholly singular way, she cooperated by her obedience. And for this reason, she is the mother to us in the order of grace. It continues uninterrupted from the moment that her consent was given at the Annunciation. She is the mother of us in the order of grace. So part of understanding this is, is at the Annunciation, when the, when the angel visits Mary, she says yes to Christ's mission, to him coming. She cooperates with them by giving him a body in that yes. But she's also saying yes on behalf of us. It's sort of um, what godparents do at baptism. Mary is saying yes. She's accepting this, the grace of, the, of Christ, of God, coming into history and into our lives. She's saying yes to that at the Annunciation as well. Mary's function as mother of men is in, in no way obscures or diminishes the unique mediation of Christ, but rather shows its power. We're told about devotion to Mary, which flows from Elizabeth's greeting, all generations, or excuse me, Our Lady's note in the Magnificat, Magnificat all generations will call me blessed. The very special devotion to Our Lady differs essentially from the adoration which is given to the incarnate Word. And just to end up on the section of the Church, I know we're a little bit, but um, connected to the Church is this next item of the Creed is that I believe in the forgiveness of sins, or, or I acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. It is a reminder that the mission of Christ, the joint mission of Christ and the Holy Spirit, continues in the church most powerfully in the power of the keys which Christ has given to the church to forgive sins. A divine power, nonetheless, that Christ entrusts to his church. This is listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio. You've been listening to Catechesis from the Cathedral with Father Adam Streitenberger. If you'd like to listen to this episode again, download it, or share it with a friend, please visit stgabrielradio.com, go to our audio archives, and look for Catechesis from the Cathedral. Thanks so much for joining us today. God bless, and have a great day.